You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Skylight Books Crowdcast channel. My name is Natalie, and I am the assistant events manager here at Skylight, physically here. I am in our back office, um, and so glad that you could join us for this very special event featuring the book of the most precious substance by Sarah Gran, and she will be in conversation with Liberty Hardy. Uh, we are so excited to have them both here. They are so excited to chat and to take some questions from you as well. Sarah Gran is the founder of Dreamland Books and the author of the book of the most precious substance, as well as seven previous novels, including Come Closer and the Claire DeWitt series. Her books have been published around the world and praised by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and dozens of other publications. Originally from Brooklyn, New York, Gran now lives in Los Angeles, where she writes for television and film. And she'll be in conversation with Liberty Hardy among her several jobs. Liberty Hardy is a senior contributing editor, editor for Book Riot and co-host of the popular All the Books podcast. She lives in the great state of Maine, where she reads over 600 books a year and hangs out with her three cats who hate to read. But Liberty loves to read, and we are so excited to have her and Sarah here to chat with us. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you, Natalie. Hello. Thank you. Um, I have a very, very sad announcement to make, which is Liberty has said her cats will not be showing up on the, on the event tonight. So if anyone came for the cats, you can leave. We will not be offended. <laughs> Go right ahead. That's what I came for. I'm tempted to just walk right out myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they're they outside the door right now, like trying to get in. So there is a good chance that they might come through the door like the Kool-Aid man and make an appearance anyway. One opposable don't thumb. like doors. <laughs> <laughs> and they're in. Yeah. There's three of them and only one of me. I can only hold them <laughs> off for so long. And I'm on their side, so we're all we're taking you. <laughs> so hello. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this, Liberty. Thank you so much for asking me. Um, I don't want to get too weird and fangirly, but <laughs> I me either. Love we're both holding your back so much. And I was just so thrilled that you asked me to do this. And I was thrilled that there Thank was a you. new Sarah Grand book, as with so many other people. I mean when people hear there's a new Sarah Grand book, they just go bananas. Like everyone gets so excited <laughs> and it's just so wonderful. And you are going to read a little bit uh, for us from the book. Um, do you want to talk about what yes. the book is about first before you do that? Sure. I'll talk a little bit about the book and I will say Liberty is, you know, one of the most uh, just enthusiastic and positive and wonderful presences in the book world. And I feel like if you no. look at the literary landscape, you could sort of see before Liberty and after Liberty, because not only is she so engaged with books and so engaged with contemporary fiction, she's so nice and she's so fun. And so many people <laughs> who engage in this book universe have, a, you know, a, a highbrow attitude or a lowbrow preference or or something that they're very angry about and need to get on their chest. And if you do, you keep it to yourself very well, because you always just seem... <laughs> It's a, this beautiful positivity that you bring to our, our little universe. So thank you, Liberty. Well, thank um, you so much. That was it, so nice. It's so true. Um, and I, we were just saying, I met you for the first time about 12 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I am now so old that the doctor has officially told me I have soft bones. That is how long we have known each other. Mm -hmm. When I, when I first met Liberty, I had the hard engaged bones of a young woman <laughs> and, now, and now they are soft and melting. <laughs> so um, I will get to the book. I, I'm never getting over the soft bone thing, obviously. So to get to the book, which I will do a little reading from first, um, it is a book about a woman named Lily Albrecht, who has had some personal tragedy, and she's a book dealer. And uh, she is given a lead on a rare book called The Book of the Most Precious Substance, the book of the title. And she and her friend Lucas go on this sort of search around the world to look for this book and hopefully find it to sell for a lot of money and also because it has some magical powers that she would like to uh, take advantage of. So she is very close to finding the book in this passage I'm going to read. And she is in the uh, she is going from Paris to the south of France where she has been told that somebody might have the book. This is page 219. The train from Paris to the countryside was beautiful and, being France, delicious. The ride was about two hours. A little ham sandwich and a hot chocolate from the train station cafe ranked with the best meal in the upstate town where I lived. Once we flew past the suburbs, the countryside was green, lush, and damp. Farmer, 
farms and wetlands interspersed with thick woods. I got off the train in the small, dense city and hailed a taxi. In fumbling French, I tried and failed to communicate my destination to the driver. Finally, I just showed him the non-address on my phone, and his old Gaelic face lit up with recognition. Oui, he said, le chateau. We drove through the cobblestone-streeted town, through a ring of placid suburbs, and out to the countryside. There were fields of corn and apple orchards and pig farms, dotted with the occasional bigger, wealthier home. After a 30-minute drive at a thousand roundabouts, the driver turned down a smaller, unpaved, two-lane road into a wooded area. Then another, even narrower road, and then onto a long gravel driveway, where we drove up to an iron gate. At the gate, he buzzed an intercom, exchanged a few words in French about une femme américaine, non, je ne sais, and the gate swung open. We drove down the driveway for at least another five minutes, woods on either side, until we came to a mile-wide clearing of bright green grass with an ancient house in the middle of it, easily from the 1600s. It was not huge and was made out of rough stone that made it look more like a church than a home. On all sides of the lawn were woods that looked older than the house. To one side was an elaborate garden, to another a gazebo, and later I'd see behind the house were stables, sheds, and a few other outbuildings. I hardly knew old money came quite so old. The car stopped about 10 feet from the entryway to the house. As I got out, I saw a small, open, horse-drawn carriage pull up from a path in the woods and approach the house. Inside the black, ornate carriage were three women. I could hear them laughing as I walked up to the house. One of the women had white blonde hair and wore a black bustier and a long, full black skirt. She had red lipstick on her lips and big, round, dark glasses over her eyes. Soon I would learn she was cat, French Chinese, somewhere between 40 and 70. A second woman, much younger, had long, wavy blonde hair that cascaded down her back and wore jeans and a lace-trimmed camisole top. She had no makeup on her face and beat-up sneakers on her feet. That was Carrie Ann. The third woman, Maud, about my own age, had steel gray hair swept into an updo and wore a black suit with a thin, transparent white t-shirt underneath, revealing a taut waist and high, small breasts. I stopped walking and watched them. Now, closer, I saw the carriage wasn't drawn by horses. It was drawn by two people with large, elaborate horse masks over their faces and black leather or synthetic costumes covering their bodies. Still laughing, the woman in the black suit, Maud, pulled the reins on the horse people, telling them to stop a few yards from the house. Cat, the woman in the bustier, stood up. She had a long leather whip in her hand. She lashed the whip and made a loud cracking sound and caught both horse people around their backs. One stood perfectly rigidly still. The other shivered a little when the whip touched his back. Why, hello, Cat called out to me. You must be the American. Come in. We're having a late lunch and you must join us. when I was reading the book. Horse people. Horse people. There's horse people. It's about horse people. <laughs> <was> great. <laughs> so in preparation for tonight, I read a lot of your recent interviews. And basically, I'm just going to ask you a lot of questions based on what I read there, because it was all cool. so fascinating, which is also where I saw that amazing photo of you uh, in the Los Angeles time with your cast, <laughs> which is unfortunately <laughs> the thing that led to le learning that you have soft bones. Yes, um, my soft bones. <laughs> <laughs> so, like a million times, you know, we, you know, book lovers have heard that famous quote from Toni Morrison if there's a book you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And I think LitHub asked you, you know, why, why you wrote this book. And you said, because it was from wanting to read something escapist and compelling and smart and not being able to find it. Um, and I just was curious about uh, what you meant by that. I mean, we know what you mean by that, but if you would expound on that and like where you came up with the idea for this book. Yeah, thank you. And that is exactly right. You know, I was going through this difficult time that relates to things in the in the book because her husband is very ill. And that is sort of like the uh, uh, inciting incident of the book is her husband is terribly sick and she wants to get him better. So while I was writing this book, my parents were very sick. They would die soon after. And my husband was having health problems as well. And I wanted a day off. I wanted to read something fun and smart. And usually the things I write are really dark. And I think this book has some darkness in it. And usually what I read is is pretty dark. I read a lot of nonfiction or I tend to read some fairly dark fiction. And I didn't want that. I wanted a break, but I didn't want to read something stupid or badly written. And um, I couldn't quite find the exact thing I wanted to read. And I love that kind of old world Da Vinci Code, uh, Ninth Gate book, Antiquities universe. But again, I wanted to read something that was, you know, not to toot my own harm so much that it's so smart, but just that gave you a little bit extra, that gave you a little bit more and was not just... Uh, 
a sort of summary of events. Um, so I wrote it because that was where I wanted to sort of spend my time and be. <laughs> so I don't know that I've ever read a book that has had so many different definitions and genres attached to it. I think yeah. when I was first told about it, it was an erotic thriller. Mm -hmm. Then I read it was a horror thriller, mm -hmm. mystery, erotic mystery. Like, how do you define it? I thought of it as a thriller, but I found that interesting too, because all of my previous books have been squarely like in one genre or another, like Come Closer mm -hmm. is very squarely horror. My crime stuff is very obviously crime detective fiction. And I never really think about that when I'm doing it, like what categories is going to fit, but it had just sort of naturally gone that way. So I think of it as a thriller, but I was interested in a good way. I thought it was cool to see how many different categories people put it in. And I think it was probably based more on like my previous work they had read than the book itself, mm -hmm. but it's all good either way for sure. So it is so many things, but also it's an incredible story about love and loss. You know, she she's lost like everything, almost everything in her life. You know, Lily Albrecht, you know, she's lost her husband, her sex life, her money, her career, you know, and she hopes that by finding this book, it will bring her what she thinks she needs at first, which is money, because she can sell the book, you know, and help pay her bills and all this stuff. But also then she get, when she begins to learn about it, or maybe not even learn about it, but when the book begins to learn about her, you know, it might find something else for her. Um, and then she finds Lucas, you know, her partner in crime who helps her go on this worldwide journey to look for the book. And there is a lot of sex in this book. <laughs> <laughs> and you said that was an intentional choice to have sex in the book. And I was wondering if you would, if you would talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I felt like, you know, I've said this many, many times about many other books that I've written. Whenever you can find something that you hasn't been done or hasn't been done in the way you want to do it as a writer, that is a huge gift. That is an extraordinary thing to find. And there's not a huge amount out there that's like woman perspective from a female perspective that takes sex really seriously. Um, and also it was so challenging to write about sex. I had never really done it before and I enjoy a challenge. I wanted a challenge. So once that sort of presented itself as a possibility for me, I was like, oh, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I have no idea what I'm doing. That's kind of where you want to be, I think, as a writer. <laughs> uncomfortable and no idea what you're doing, I think is sort of the ideal state. Um, so it was very intentional to kind of push my boundaries and sort of push the boundaries of, you know, what I'm reading. It's, and it also, I think, has to do with getting older, because if I had this sort of large sexual content in my first couple of books, I probably wouldn't have a career. And at my age and sort of, I'm like, I can do whatever the fuck I want. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't worry about what anyone's going to think or if anyone's going to want to publish it. I published it myself in the end. Um, but yeah, it just seems like it presented all of these challenges that would be kind of good for me personally and might make for an interesting book. And hopefully it did. And, and just if you wouldn't mind humoring me, just building up that, I, I'm just curious to, to ask you, like, why you think it is that people freak out about sex in books and movies, but not violence? That is such a good question. I've heard that before, and I don't know what the answer is. It's really interesting to me. And why, as a writer, I and so many of like my peers, so many people I know, why we are so comfortable writing about sex <clears throat> and not comfortable writing about violence. And I mean, when you are a writer for TV and film, you just know that you're not going to be able to show certain things. So you can show almost as much violence as you would ever want. I can certainly show as much as I want because I don't want to show that much. But with sex, you know you're going to have those constraints. So that's a net, that's a cultural decision that the network is is enacting, you know, the cultural drive towards that. So that's not a creative decision. But if you look at novels, it's definitely a creative decision on the part of writers. I don't know. I'm not sure why I was so scared of it for so long. I mean, I think in my detective series, it wouldn't fit. You know, I don't think we'd want to have too much sex in those books. It's just not what it's about. But I look at my other books and I see there are places where I shied off from it. Um, and I'm not quite sure why I would shy off from or why other people, like you said, would have this limit on sex, but not on violence. There's something very strange and deep going on there. Do you have a thought on why it is? I, I don't. You know, that's why I'm yeah. so other other people. Do yeah, you think if yeah. You wrote, do you think if you wrote Come Closer Today, it would have more sex in it? That's a really good question. Probably a little bit more. Yeah. Like there's a little yeah. bit of sex in that book, but now that I, I had never thought about it before, but now that you're asking, I wonder if there would be like an ugly dark sex scene in that book for sure. So one of the things I loved about this book is the different jaunts to talk to these different, you know, book obsessed eccentrics in different places around the globe. And I was wondering if you had a favorite one, like if you uh, like 
I the one I just read. Yeah. yeah. The one but I just read for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that was Madame inspired. M. Yes. It was not inspired by anything remotely as uh, exciting as in the book, but I, my books have done decently in France and I've gotten to go there for tours. So it's a whole different universe, the whole like world of being a writer in France, because there's this big infrastructure. So there's book fairs that are like, like every weekend, there's one in a different small town somewhere. And then they was a program, I guess it was through the publisher, where they take authors to uh, these small town schools and you read in the small town and you talk to the kids. So really, obviously would not work for this book, <laughs> but, but for other books, it did work well and they get to practice their English and you get to travel all over. So we had all these weird drives around France, going to these small towns, to these little high schools and... Um, and that was a huge inspiration for it, for sure. For like, where else would I have gone to the French countryside and sort of roamed around, you know? Mm -hmm. So that is my favorite part, for sure. Yeah. I just, I love, because I feel like we know so many of these book people already. Like when you describe them, you're like, oh yes, we know someone like that. And we've seen someone like that. You know, they're just so great. Um, so I'm going to, I'm sure you're probably already tired of answering this question, but I'm going to okay. ask it anyway. <laughs> Do you believe in magic? I think it's possible. You know, I don't want to say believe in as in I'm absolutely sure it's always going to work. No, nothing's like that. Almost nothing is like that in life, right? Is it a possibility? Yes. Does it work? It, there's some evidence out there. And if you really get into like paranormal um, um, scholarship, which there's less and less of every year, although perhaps it's going through a bit of a revival, you know, accompanied by this big psychedelic revival is hopefully spurring on a bit of a revival of true paranormal research. There are people out there who can do weird shit, and it's kind of been proven over and over again. There is more evidence. I've heard this a couple times, but I haven't verified it. If anyone wants to go Google it and prove me wrong, feel free. One thing I've heard many times that I believe, there is more clinical scientific evidence for people to have mild abilities to like influence a random number generator than there is for aspirin working. My goodness, I had not heard that before. Yeah, because there is so much research that's always discounted in anything remotely paranormal. So mm -hmm. I do think there's a lot of potential to this stuff. I also think it's quite dangerous. I also think there's a lot of letting things into your life that you might not want to let into your life. And mm -hmm. I also think the sort of big theme of the book is be careful what you wish for. And most people are wrong about what will make them happy. And, you know, as we were discussing, I work in Hollywood. I know some, you know, incredibly wealthy, incredibly successful people. And a lot of them were wrong about what would make them happy in life. They were yeah. just not correct. And they thought, well, if I get this, then I'll be happy. And some of them were right, by the way, too. I should I should add there are, there are some uh, some people who are worth, you know, a couple hundred million dollars who are very happy with it and very nice. And they're like, no, no, no this is good. I'm done. But yeah. there are some people for whom enough is never enough because they are going after the wrong the wrong things. Yeah. And in, and in some of the characters, I mean, there are supposedly a few copies of this book in existence, mm -hmm. the book of most precious, precious substance. And they, they're all owned by people who have a ton of money. It's almost like they have so much that they don't know what else to do with themselves. So now they feel like I'm going to go after this book of magic and I'm going to, you know, have sex parties and I'm going to do all this stuff because they're just constantly still looking for like that one thing because nothing is giving them the answers. And oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, I feel like the people who who have encounters with the book sort of fall into two categories. There are the people who want it for power and for money and which are, again, reasons that sometimes, sure, they will work to make you happy. If you're dead broke, money is absolutely going to make you a little happier. If you already have $10 million in the bank, more is probably not going to do much for you unless you really have a plan. You want to open a children's hospital? Yeah, sure. That's great. <laughs> if you're just kind of using it as a gauge for your self-esteem, it's not going to get you anywhere. But then there's sort of the other half, like the south of France, the apartment in Paris and the people who live there. There are these magicians who live in this apartment who she becomes very friendly with. And it turns out they know people in common. And, and I like that scene a lot as far as as much as you ever like your own writing. <laughs> but there uh, and those are people who are just sort of exploring. They're just sort of exploring this stuff out of the joy of curiosity and the joy of having more experience in life. And I think that mm -hmm. is definitely the right way to approach these questions of is magic real? What am I doing? What do I want? Well, what is bringing you joy? What is good for the people around you? Mm -hmm. So did you spend a lot of time researching old books for this? You, no, a little bit. Yeah. A little, a little, but you know, I had worked in the book business for a long time. Um, you know, I had to look up like, huh, what would be an expensive book now? Like, cause I had fallen out of it over the years and I certainly never sold books of that caliber of that million dollar caliber. I think when I was selling rare books, the most expensive books I ever sold was like $200, you know, and not many of those for sure more like in the $100 range. Um, 
And then, you know, I've been interested in magic all my life. So that was always sort of there. And then a lot of that stuff is just invented. So, um, no, sadly, not a lot of research. <laughs> so this is actually you, another fictional, you have a fictional book within a fictional book, which is also something that you had in Claire DeWitt, you know? Yeah. And I was wondering, I mean, that just sounds like so much fun, like making up a fictional book and deciding like what to put in it, to put in a book. And you know, you've sold books. And I was wondering if you would just talk a little bit about your relationship with books. Like, like what's your origin story? Your you know, my origin story. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was really, really lucky. My parents were really into books and I grew up in this, you know, house. It was really falling apart, a brownstone in Brooklyn in Park Slope from the 1800s. My parents moved there the year I was born, 1971. And they filled the house with books. And it was like a little bit of everything. And they were both readers who read across the spectrum and didn't put a judgment on anything. And if we went to a bookstore, you know, within uh, financial reason, they would get me whatever I wanted. There was no, they would a little bit like censor, you know, in an appropriate healthy way, what I watched on TV or what, what I, uh, movies I saw. And I mean, I shouldn't even say an appropriate way because they let me watch a lot of the things I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> so the one that really stands out is they wouldn't let me watch like the day after tomorrow, I think it was called that big nuclear fallout thing in the eighties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're a bit younger than me. So you probably, you might not know what a huge deal it was. Um, I guess it had like people who were disfigured by nuclear radiation. It was like a scare tactic. Don't use nuclear weapons uh, thing. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, you know, my dad read mystery novels and he would just buy paperback after paperback. And he had the Black Lizard books that Barry Gifford printed in their original, you know, in their original run in the 70s. Because he remembered those books from the 30s and 40s when he was growing up. But he also read like Wallace Stegner and Fred Luck Exley and all of this stuff. And my mother had uh, studied French literature in school. And she read, uh, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and all those sort of 1920s writers. But she also read like celebrity biographies and a lot of health and nutrition books. So books were just everywhere as this constant presence. And like I said, they would, you know, within reason, get me whatever I wanted or let me check out whatever I wanted from the library. Um, I don't understand how that got to be so formative in my life. Like uh, you could also look back at that history and say, you grew up in this great old house. So you became a, uh, you know, preservation person or whatever. Like, <laughs> I don't know why out of all of the factors in my childhood, that was sort of the dominant one in so many ways. So how did you decide on the name of the book? Both in, uh, they're the same, the book in the book and this book. I don't remember. I will say I remember writing this book less than any of my other books because like I said my family was sick and I was helping mm -hmm. my parents out in Brooklyn through a lot of it and I wrote a lot of this book like sitting at their kitchen table get them their snacks get them calm down because we were selling the house so they could move to California although they passed as soon as they got here the whole thing was a, a you know not good thank you thank you so I was written it like on the airplane back and forth from LA to California. And I remember less of it than I do any of my other books, which is odd to me. I usually have pretty clear answers to that question. It's a question, mm -hmm. when did you write this? And a lot of this, I'm like, I don't know. I don't remember. I just kind of went. And also I wrote it. It was an easier book to write than most of my books, which I think is why oh. I don't remember it as most. Because my other books have these really intricate, for better or worse, plots and universes. And like the Claire DeWitt series, I really like just fucked myself totally with those books because <laughs> it's this very complicated world now. So every time I get back into it and I'm working on the next book in that, it's just really, really hard to keep track of which character was where in 1985. And like, wait, did they know that person? No, no, because in book three, you said on June 15th, they were not at that subway station. Yeah. So after that's most of my writing life. And then when you do like film and TV stuff, it's really hard because you have like a million opinions to keep into account and a million people to keep happy. You're not just writing for yourself. It's a job. So this was like a little bit of a vacation for me writing this. It was just just straightforward. The plot is not complicated at all. Mm -hmm. It's very, very simple. She's looking for the book. She finds it or she doesn't. <clears throat> I hope there's surprises and twists and turns, but they weren't like hard to come up with or hard to work. Mm -hmm. Hopefully they're just surprising in terms of character. So I think that's one reason why I don't remember it as well, too. And without spoiling anything, did you have this ending in mind when you started the book? Not exactly. No, no. I knew I wanted the ending to be unexpected. And I had a little bit of it from the very start. As soon as I kind of got serious about it past that, like fucking around stage, like, no, I'm really going to write this. I, I, I had one of those ending scenes in my mind from the very beginning. Um, but then there's some of the twists that didn't come in until I actually got there. And um, one thing I've, I've noticed is that all of your books are written in the first person. Have yeah. you ever, have you ever 
thought like maybe I'm going to try writing in the third person or have you tried doing it in like a different perspective and been like do you just feel most comfortable in the first person I strongly prefer it because it gives you that access to the interior life that third mm -hmm. person I mean you can do it through a really close third person it's not impossible but it's just easier if it's first person and also for me the writing process is getting inside the head of that character but I wrote a novella over the summer which I'm still not sure what I'm going to do with I will publish it in some form but I wrote like a sort of old fashioned country house mystery in the third person. Ooh. And, hmm. and uh, it was fun to write. It was really fun, but I also, I like first person better. It really solidified that for me because I missed mm -hmm. being able to get that close inside the head of the person, like third person, just on a, the structure of a sentence. Once you have the he, she, they, whatever, you're just not quite in there as much as you are with I, me. Mm -hmm. So for me, something is lost. So uh, would you please talk a little bit about starting Dreamland and why you decided to publish this book yourself instead of going with, what we could say, the usual route or the what is considered the necessary evil? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's not necessary. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone out there is wondering, not necessary. The evil of working with a big publisher, if that's what you meant. And there, of course, there aren't evil people there. There's lovely people there. Oh, yeah. But no, I just mean like... No, no, I know you meant that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, they're giant multinational corporations, yeah. you know? And that's that's the kind of the evil part. It's not the people who work there, some of whom are fucking assholes, but most of whom are lovely and wonderful, of course. <laughs> there's, there's assholes everywhere. There's no denying that. But you do not have to hand your intellectual property over to a multinational corporation to publish a book in this day and age. Um, it's something I've always wanted to do. You know, my first two books were with Soho Press, which was wonderful. I'm really glad I did that. The books are still in print. And there were ups and downs with that. But on the whole, it was a really positive experience. And But even when I was publishing my first book with them, I was like, do I really want to give away? Like, technically, you keep your copyright <clears throat> when you publish a book. But the reality is you're not getting those rights back ever. You're never getting your U.S. publishing rights back unless you want to hire like a lawyer, maybe for $200,000, you'd go to court, it gets your rights back for a book that for me makes a couple thousand dollars a year on royalties. If I was rich enough, I would do it just because I'm spiteful. Me and me and my spiteful soft bones would do it just to, <laughs> just to do it and just to get my books back from some of the publishers I've worked with. Um, not Soho, by the way. But, but from that very first book, I was like, do I really want to do this? And I'm glad I did, like I said, for those first couple books. And I've had really, really wonderful experiences in publishing, but I've also had bad experiences. But it was more like the carrot than the stick. You know, the stick was, I felt like my last book publication was a painful experience, quite frankly. But the carrot was just that I had always wanted to do this. I had always wanted to learn more about the printing process, about the publicity process, about marketing. And I fucked up so much, by the way. I made huge mistakes. <laughs> that, but the smart mistake I made is I hired a wonderful publicist, Kathy Daneman, who's probably yeah, here. Kathy. Hi, Kathy. I don't know if she's here, but probably. And she, her wonderful work in PR and my great designers. Are we, um, every, I was telling you before, people's names just fall out of your head when you're in public. Zoe, my <laughs> wonderful designer, whose name I can't remember, even though she's, uh, I've worked with her for two years on this book now. But I had this great team of people who did not fuck up, who did a really good job, who really went above and beyond every step of the way. And I was able to pay for it and do it in a very expensive way because I had been working on a, on a lucrative, if if trying, TV show the previous year. Um, so, yeah, I had the money. That was one factor. I had always wanted to do it. That was another. I felt like I had nothing to lose because I feel like, you know, it's, it's a little painful to admit at any level that you sort of care about what other people think or that your reputation is important to you. But I did feel mm -hmm. like, nah, I, I don't have anything to prove. I've published with all the big publishers and a bunch of the smaller ones. I've never had a bestseller, probably never will, but I have done kind of everything I've wanted to do. And now I want to be happy. Now I want to do things that are going to be fun and interesting rather than try to like, you know, manipulate my way to the top of some little pile of shit. Like, I don't want to do that anymore. And that was kind of the only reason I was working with a big corporate New York publisher is, is that chance of getting on the bestseller list or having a huge hit, which is not very important to me and was definitely not worth, um, you know, because the risk with a big publisher is they stop returning your emails and phone calls because there's no right. bottom sort of at big corporate publishers. And it's because people are overworked. Again, it's not because people are assholes. It's because they have too much on their plate. Some of them are assholes. But it's also <laughs> mostly people have too much on their plate and don't quite have the time of the day to do it all. They want to go see their kids yeah. and their families and whatnot like normal human beings. They don't want to answer my emails, uh, uh, stay up until midnight answering emails from writers like me. I get it. Um 
so I had wanted to do it forever. And then also I felt like this book, I knew it could sell. So again, vanity played a part in that. But I also felt like I didn't want to go through the publication process with an editor. I have gotten a huge amount from working with editors in the past. And even, you know, I was talking about my last book being a bit painful, but that was a great editor. He did a really good job helping me get the book into shape. And with my next book, the next Claire DeWitt book, I will definitely need an editor for that. This book did not need an editor. Um, it was, like I said, it was a straightforward, it's a simple manuscript. I'm a fairly good editor of my own work. I knew great copy editors. And I had also, another thing that has sort of gone off the rails at big publishers is the copy editing process has gotten out of control. So with my last book, the copy editor basically rewrote all the punctuation in the book. And you have to then spend your time putting all of that back because I actually put a fuck ton of thought into every single comma and you're not <laughs> changing it at all. <laughs> like there was no accidents in my commas. And the Claire DeWitt books have a bit of this run-on style in her narration. Mm -hmm. And they apparently thought that was a mark of just complete illiteracy on my part, I guess is what they thought, that I just didn't know you're supposed to put periods. That's, no, you put a period in the middle. <laughs> I guess they, they thought I didn't know that. So, so thank you. Thank you for your assumptions, uh, anonymous copy <laughs> editor. Thank you for trying to correct what you thought was my illiteracy, is what I should say, being more generous. Um, I knew I didn't want to go through that with this book. And back to the sex stuff, I was like, uh, you know, you know, you can never predict, but I anticipated that being a problem. It's not erotica, and it's also not like a normal square book with no sex in it. And I anticipated that there would be a desire to be pushed into one direction or the other, but mm -hmm. maybe not, you know, but maybe not. And I also knew that this book would sell copies, and it has been selling copies. Like with my Claire Dillard books, I'm totally shocked that they have sold and found an audience and with other things I write. I I've been on the whole a fairly good predictor of what will sell and not sell in my own universe. Like I knew that Come Closer when it was coming out could sell really well. It didn't at the time. It sold like 500 copies in its first year, maybe, maybe wow. 2,500 tops, but probably closer to like a thousand or less. And now, but it sells better and better every year, 20 years on, I was right about yeah. that. And I knew I was right about this, that it could sell uh, and that I would be smart to keep all of that royalty money for myself over the course of my lifetime. Having never written a book or several books, when I think about publishing for yourself, my first exciting thought was, I get to pick my own cover. Yes, <laughs> that was also exciting. To do that. <laughs> that's that's my big publishing dream, I guess, is to write a book so I can pick the cover. <laughs> it was amazing to pick the cover and to work with Zoe, my great designer. And, um, you know, and but the funny thing is, I was like, no, I know exactly what I want to the cover. And she gave me exactly what I wanted. And but then she also gave me her own idea. And her own idea was a million times better. But I could tell her to see her wonderful work. As I am totally drawing a blank on her name, I will look it up because I liked her so much. I said, please put your book on the um, page. Zoe Norvell. How could I forget her name? Zoe Norvell. Again, someone I've known for like two yeah, years now. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> so she came up with this wonderful design. I said, let's add the water. Yes. If you've read the book, it will make sense. It's a bit of a, yes. a crude joke, but I also think it's a lovely image. So she found these beautiful poppies, not knowing that that is one of my favorite flowers. And I'm a bit of a flower obsessed person. And these poppies, when they are first coming out, is one of my just favorite things. And she came up with a beautiful type. And I could do things like I made the type a little bit bigger than is typical in a book because I, as an old woman with soft bones, I enjoy slightly bigger type. You know, there was a book I wanted to read today. Yesterday, my friend was over helping me out because of my soft bone broken ankle. And I, I had it in a mass market paperback. And I was like, I'm not reading this because my vision isn't quite bad enough for reading glasses. They are actually mm -hmm. sort of too strong, but it's not good enough to read a book unless it's brightly lit and has slightly larger type. So I bought it on my Kindle and I gave her the paperback. But yeah, I could do things like make the type a little bit bigger, decide how I want the page breaks to look, all of that stuff. It was a joy for me to do all that, you know, and part of it's not. Um, I don't like to think that I'm controlling, but maybe I am a little controlling, you know, I'm old and I'm cranky and I kind of <laughs> wanted it to be the way I wanted it to be. Um, but that's, you know, the sort of negative way of looking at it. The positive way is, like I said, it was just a real joy to make all those details. And I really wanted the package to fit with the book. Mm -hmm. So the package tells the story. So the cover sets the mood for the book in a way that I was really, really happy with. And we worked together on really closely. So it was wonderful to do that. So what do you have planned for Dreamland for the future? Um, I'm going to give it another month or so and uh, realize exactly how many mistakes I've made. I know some of them and the summer still to come for sure. And then uh, the goal is to publish like one of my own books every year because I have a few mm -hmm. backed up. It certainly won't be one a year every year, but probably for the next couple of years because I have a couple things ready to go. And um, 
and a couple of books by other people too, and keep it really small, maybe two to four books a year. Um, and I have not picked any books yet because like I said, I wanted to get through this publication first and do a little post-mortem. What I don't want to do is take on another writer's work and fuck it up. Like I don't mind making mistakes on myself, but I know how devastating, pardon me, it is if you're publishing a book and all these mistakes are made, it can really um, affect someone emotionally and affect them financially. And I also want to, uh, the hard thing is the thought of handling someone else's money is the really hard thing of handling royalties, having to obviously keep them secure. And I want to come up with a, a really different way to share finances with writers. You know, advances seem great, but in exchange for those big advances, you're getting a really low royalty rate. So what do those numbers actually look like? How mm -hmm. much can you actually, because I don't need to make a ton of money off this. I need to not lose money. I certainly can't afford to give it away, but I have a, a you know, another thing that I make money from that is good enough. So how much can I afford to give without losing money? How high can those royalty rates be? The one thing I know for a fact I want to do is no life of the copyright contract. I want it to be a five or a 10 year contract, which is what you already get when you sell your books to other territories. Like all my European mm -hmm. territories are five to 10 years. And that's just a much more sane way to publish a book. And it also like um, for you, you know, when there's inheritances, when there are, are, what am I thinking of? Like chain of title issues, as we say in Hollywood. <clears throat> you don't want these extended life of the copyright deals. It doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. It's not good for anyone. It's definitely not good for writers. It's not good for their families. And it traps everyone in a relationship that they may or may not want to be in. You know, one of my books has been in and out of print over the years. Dope. They're never going to give me the rights back, not unless I get that $200,000 court case. And even then I'd probably lose because the way the contracts are written is like, eh, is it in print? Well, you can order it for Amazon. Bookstores can't stock it. I don't know mm -hmm. why. Penguin won't sell it to bookstores. Uh, and there are bookstores that would carry it. Not many, but a couple of mystery bookstores. I mean, the financial thing is not a concern for me. I'm missing out on, you know, I don't think it's even earned out its advance maybe from uh, 10 years ago. I don't remember, but it, it doesn't sell well. I'd be missing out on a couple thousand dollars a year, but it pains me that people can't get this book that I put a lot of work into. And it's important to me. Uh, it doesn't need to be financially lucrative or important to anyone else. So I never want to give those rights away again for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, 75 years after my death, that's fucking ridiculous. I'm never doing that again amazing yeah so you also write for television and film and do you have a preference or do you is it just dependent upon what you're working on or are you some days like oh i wish i was working on a book right now or when you're working on a book you're like i wish i was working on a script right now you know how does it how does it differ <laughs> Yeah, working on a script is always easier. And that is something that like it makes people really angry if you say that. But as someone who has done a lot of both, <laughs> a scripts are shorter, if nothing else. They're just shorter. Mm -hmm. And working writing features is harder. That, you know, as we call films in Hollywood, that's more like writing a book. But for me, the easiest and most lucrative thing in my life is writing a TV pilot. Because I can write a pilot, sell it. Not always, of course. You don't sell all of them. But if you can write a pilot, sell it either before you write it and get someone to pay you to write it or write it on spec and then sell it because you don't have to come up with the ending. That's like the really, really hard part. You come up with a bullshit ending for your pitch, right? But a pilot <laughs> is the beginning of something. It's like writing the first chapter of a book. And I think you told me, I think I asked you this at one point, how long it takes you to read a book. And you said it was about eight to 10 hours. And I asked a couple other people and got the same answer. And I realized that uh, a season of cable TV is usually eight to 12 episodes, usually let's say 10. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so a season of cable TV is about the same length as a book. So what you're writing when you write the pilot is a first chapter of the book and the whole rest of it is, you know, for the future, someone else's problem, <laughs> maybe yours someday, maybe, but then it's future you, it's not today you. Um, so writing a script is always easier and I always compare it to like candy versus a real meal because writing that script is like candy, it pays really well, it's so much easier, it can be really fun, you get to imagine all the fancy people in their wonderful costumes doing it, you mm -hmm. get to go out to meetings and you have meetings with all these big celebrities and they're like, oh my god, I love your work and then they have no idea who you are two weeks later because that's a big part of their job is making people feel good, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not fake, it's just their job, they're lovely people. Um, and then the book, you're sitting at home alone doing something that at most, you know, uh, 20,000 people are going to check out. And if I sell 20,000 copies of the book, that would be a fucking banner day for me. I don't think I've sold 20,000 copies of anything. Um, I mean, over the years, sure, but not, but not right off the bat. But uh, so they're just so different. They're so different. So in the long term, writing books is so much better for you. and makes you such a better writer. But writing scripts is really fun and obviously pays 10 to 100 times more, literally. <laughs> <laughs> it 
that's a really great thing about the ending because I always find that even sometimes in books that I absolutely love, like the ending is always like, mm, it must be the hardest part to write. And then you just write a script. You don't have to worry about it. It is, it is. And then if you go into production, you're like, oh, we didn't, we didn't really think about, oh. <laughs> but, but very few things actually go into production. So out of all the pilots that I've written, and I've made a living doing this for like uh, 12 years now, I guess, um, only one has been produced and then it didn't get picked up. We didn't make it into a show. And somehow I still make a living. It's nuts. I don't understand it. <laughs> so going off that, I read in one of your interviews, you said that if you weren't a writer, you would be a religious studies scholar. Yeah, or paranormal researcher, as discussed. Oh, I missed yeah. that one. Yeah, that no, no, I just mean how I was talking about it earlier. Yes, I don't think I mentioned <laughs> it in the interview. I'm just thinking about it now because we're talking. But something like that realm of the unknown in life has always been sort of what I'm interested in. It's funny, I was saying my my parents would let me buy any books that I wanted when I was a kid, and I would always go for, like, the little Bigfoot paperback or the, uh, mm -hmm. is the Bermuda Triangle real? I don't know. It's not real. But in the 70s, it seemed very possible that there was a lot going on in the Bermuda Triangle. So that has always been a huge fascination of mine. Um, and I hope it continues to be. It brings me great joy to read about that stuff. And whether it's some like crappy Gaia uh, ancient alien style TV show, which I absolutely love, or serious paranormal research and religious studies. I studied cultural anthropology in college, and that was my area of interest was, you know, magic and religion and beliefs. Um, I could never get enough of it. One more question. I see that you're here, Natalie, but uh, Liberty, what would you be doing yeah. if you weren't doing what you're doing? Oh, I, I, feel, I feel like you are so subsumed in your book world. What else would you do? What else do you want to I am. In? Honestly, like when I think about not when doing something else, I would like to come up with punny titles for nail polish colors and uh, romance <laughs> novels, I think. Awesome. I would like to see you do both those things. <laughs> well, we have some fun questions here in the chat and everyone don't be shy you can continue to submit them um, and we'll go ahead and get started first a few people are wondering when we are going to see Claire DeWitt again a couple years I'm sorry to say I might do a book of short stories before then though I have a bunch of Claire Ooh. DeWitt short stories I used to have like a little private newsletter I would send them to now I have a public newsletter which is on Substack and about once a year, I'll send one out, although I haven't written one for a while. And then um, I have a couple that were published like in Germany or England or whatever that were not published here. So I think there'll be a book of short stories next year or the year after. And then it'll be a couple years before the novel, because as I was saying, I just utterly fucked myself in making this all very complicated. And I think it's for the best. I think it's going to be good. It's just like a huge drag to write. Uh, not to write. I love writing them. But to figure all that stuff out, all the math of who was where when, that's not my strong point in life. And then uh, let me get the name here. Uh, Julie would like to know how you decided to name your publishing company Dreamland. Oh, um, hi, Julie. Um, I think, I don't know. It's something I had thought about for years because it was something I had wanted to do for years. So I don't remember how I settled on that particular name other than it just spoke to a lot of things for me. Dreams play a big role in my fiction. And um, uh, the pilot that I did last year, I worked with a wonderful director who was also a good friend, David Slade, director of Hannibal and 30 Days of Night and many other wonderful things. And he said something really mind blowing to me. He said, no one ever has to explain the language of film to you because it is the language of dreams. So how films cut from one thing to another to another, and you wonder once you get into filmmaking, where does that language come from? Of course, early films were just like this, right? A static camera on a person, and then we got into this cut, cut, cut. So you go from a close to a wide, to a close up, to a medium shot, whatever. You wouldn't, that, that's a terrible sequence. I just uh, plotted out right there, but you got the general <laughs> idea. We've all seen, seen films and TV shows. And um, that is how things look in dreams. And I was like, oh, that's how books work, too, because I've always been fascinated by this idea of what we include and don't include in any kind of fictional narrative, right? TV show, book, film. How come we show the person going to buy a pack of cigarettes, but we never show them going to pee unless it's relevant to the plot? Or sometimes we do. I mean, if it's Ulysses or something, you do. You show people going to take a shit and, and that's a, a function of the book. But usually it's this really, really selective thing of what to include and what not to include and that those of us who create tend to do it intuitively and not examine it. And it is that dream logic. I think David was right. And I think it applies to books as well. Um, so I guess that was all more or less where that came from. And I thought it sounded cool and shallow, shallow reasons. Yes. 
Um, Lauren says hi from DC and asks if you have a favorite craft tip for an aspiring writer. Um, yeah, let's, could we come back to that one at the end? Because I want to think about yeah. it a little bit and give something yeah, yeah. good. Okay, okay, let's come back to we've that. Thank it. you, Lauren. That's we've a good question. This is a little more uh, book specific. Uh, Todd says hello from Southern Utah. Hi, Todd. I've never been to you Utah. <laughs> loves that you mentioned this idea of having a genre book that offers a little bit more. He'd love to hear more about how to strike the right balance with that kind of writing. Um, I think it is always, this isn't quite an answer to Lauren's question too, but a little bit because the answer is always being true to that vision in your head. You know what I mean? The answer is like never shying away from things. So one thing I hear from other writers a lot, and this kind of conversation that we all have all the time, being the other writers is, is, you know, one reason of many to start my own press is to give people more creative freedom. That publishers kind of push back on that stuff or the writer has an insecurity that that will happen. And so they hold back and they just make it a more straightforward genre work. And I am always sort of pushing my friends like, no, go for the personal thing, go for the philosophical angle, go for the thing that's important to you. And readers will connect with that, I think. Or if not, you know, you can just live in poverty like like I did until very recently <laughs> your whole life. Um, but you can never predict what readers are going are, are gonna to buy in big numbers. You can't predict what kind of money you're going to make. But if you want to connect with people over the course of centuries and write a book for the ages, which I hope is what you are doing as you're writing, I hope you're not just writing for today, but writing for all of humanity's future. And then you, you might feel an obligation, if you look at it like that, to put a little bit more of yourself and what's on your mind in there. So whatever sort of philosophical or political, I mean, I hate writing about politics, but it's really engaging to other people philosophical or, or, or political or spiritual questions that you have, I think to put those into your writing can only help it. And that balance will come intuitively to you as you get into it. And the more entwined your plot is with whatever larger issues you want to approach, the more your intuition will sort of take that balance over and, uh, and, and put them in the correct proportion. And what else do we have here? Are we getting back to, do you want to think about that Lauren's was... question? Yeah, did you get back to Lauren? Uh, uh, that was our, our last one for now, unless anyone else chimes in, but I can ask uh, some more questions if you'd like. Cool. Let me think about what was Lauren's question again that I utterly failed on? Craft something? Um, yeah, tips for uh, craft um, for an aspiring writer. Tips for craft. Favorite. Yes, I will give you a very, very basic. I wanted to think about it for a minute on how to phrase it because I want to give you a really, really basic and it's going to seem like beginnery, but this is actually a flaw I see in like books by writers who are way more successful than me, bestsellers or, or award winning or whatever. All of the things that I'm not, I often see this in other people's books too. Uh, pick your words carefully. I feel like this is sort of a lost art. A lot of books that I read now have a real flabbiness to them in their writing. And it's so rare that I pick up new fiction. And often as I read a work of new fiction, I am editing it in my head as I go. And I was just talking about how the copy editor changed all the commas in my book. But I feel like a lot of people are not quite copy editing themselves enough. So go through that sentence. You don't want to make it shorter necessarily, but you want to make it more precise. So you write your line, you write your paragraph, you write your book. Make sure it says exactly what you want to say take those extra words out. You don't have to say she was thinking about starting to walk to the store. Just say she got up and walked to the store or whatever it is you want to say. Maybe you want to say something big and bold that takes 20 pages, not that one sentence. But I feel like a, it's a, a common contemporary problem. And a, I do feel like it's a bit modern. It's a, I see it a little bit more recently than I did in the past, although maybe that's just luck on my part. Falling into this flabbiness, this sort of stew of words instead of a really, really precise sentence. So pick your words carefully, Lauren. That's my advice to you. I hope that's helpful. That's great advice. Um, <laughs> Lauren will let us know. Do, uh, Lauren, a year from now, yeah, come back and tell us. Maybe it was horrible out. advice and you'll be like, you totally fucked it up for me. I was doing great until you got me anxious about my word <laughs> oh, no. I will say Lauren is and a then, fabulous person and she's great at everything she does. So <laughs> this is a person you actually know? Okay, good, yes. good. Well, Lauren, Lauren, I hope you're helpful. I don't think I know you or maybe, maybe I just don't recognize your name here, but... Uh, but, but let me know if I fucked it all up for you. I will apologize. <laughs> uh, and then it looks like we may have one more. Uh, is there a work of new fiction that you, re you read recently and connected to? Um, and also, well, okay, answer that. And there's a second part, which I, I must ask as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just read my dear friend Alex Segura's new book, Secret Identity, which is out next month. 
Yeah, Liberty, yeah. Not only was it a great book, but he wrote It's All in New York in the 70s, where I grew up, and Alex just got so much right. I was a little offended that he didn't ask me for any um, help with that, because we're friends and I was there. As discussed, I'm old. Me and my very soft bones recall the 70s quite well. Um, but somehow he really nailed it, and he wasn't there. He's from Miami, although he's lived in New York for quite a long time. So uh, that was a book that I was very excited about and also felt a personal connection with, for sure. And then that the second part of the question. Oh, what was that, Liberty? <laughs> that was going to be my question. Was a, a recent book that you loved? Yes, that was it. And, and I just started the new Paul Tremblay, The Paul Bearers Club, which I haven't finished yet, but it's so good so far. And it's also really innovative. And I think back to uh, the question someone else asked about sort of how do you fit your your other things into a genre novel, Paul's book will will give you a really interesting look at how to do that. I don't think there's anything like magical in it or whatever, but there is just a lot of person. It's a very personal book and he described it as his most personal book. So I think that would be a good model for whoever asked that. Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. So that is a uh, that is always a fun question to end on, but I will give us this little cherry on top of that, which the second part of that question was, if you feel like sharing, what flavor is your vape? Oh, regular tobacco <laughs> flavor. Yeah. And sadly, it's just tobacco. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, the most embarrassing, humiliating mission I can make is I started smoking cigarettes again over the summer. Everyone knows I smoke weed. Who fucking cares? Not a problem. But I started smoking <laughs> cigarettes again over the summer. I had a, uh, a slightly traumatic experience. Let's call it an extremely bad day. Let's call it one of the worst days of my life. And I just, someone was in the hospital. I went out for a walk. There's this homeless guy sitting there and he had a six pack of red stripe beer which is a really nice i don't drink beer i'm gluten-free the, the other really embarrassing thing about me not just always smoke but i'm gluten-free he was sitting there smoking cigarettes and drinking this red stripe and i was talking to him i'm like that you have the right idea about how to spend an afternoon buddy like like you you have figured out what to do with your life you are you know like i'm sure being homeless is a fucking nightmare but for right now in this particular moment you're doing everything right and uh, I just went in the store. I went into a wine bar and got a glass of wine. And then I was a little tipsy and I went and I got a pack of cigarettes and now I smoke again. And I was telling these guys, for some reason, I feel bad smoking cigarettes on camera, but I feel like I can smoke my vape pen on camera. I don't know what that's about. I think that's about my personal shame. I don't know. Well, thank you both so much for joining us for such a lively conversation in the chat and in the questions and between the two of you. It was such a pleasure to have you here to celebrate the book of the most precious substance. And as I mentioned, if you have not purchased your copy already, you can use this shiny green button down at the bottom of your screen. Um, make sure to choose the signed author book um, <laughs> option so we'll know that when Sarah comes by, she can sign those for you. Um, she's going to make her way over to Skylight to give you a little special exclusive treat. Um, yes. And thank you again. Yes, our guests were Sarah Grant, and she was in conversation with Liberty Hardy. And thank you all for joining us in the virtual realm. And thank you so much, Natalie and uh, Liberty, for doing this. And uh, as I said, Liberty is such a, a, a champion in the book world and such a wonderful leader for us, and Skylight is as well. We are so lucky to have you, and I couldn't do what I do unless you guys were doing what you do. So thank you so much. Thank you. We love working with both of you and we hope to see you again very soon for all the next ones. Thank you. Thank you Bye. all. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.